Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum radio show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus did. As I explained last week, we spent the last several months interviewing guests on the show. We spent last week covering some questions that I answered at a local high school Bible class. I want to spend one more episode finishing up those questions today. Well, let's jump right into the questions. The first question today is, does the Bible actually address abortion? Or do we as Christians just assume that it's in there and therefore a sin? Now, this is a great question, and I understand it can be a very sensitive topic. The only thing that really matters on the topic of abortion is whether or not the unborn is a person. Now, one of the observations that a lot of groups have converged on is that the unborn is only different from an adult person in four different categories, and they have the acronym of SLED, S-L-E-D. The first one, S, is size. The unborn is smaller than an adult person. The second one is L, level of development. The unborn is at a different level of development than a mature person. The third is environment. The unborn is in a different place than an adult person. And the fourth is a degree of dependency. An unborn is completely dependent on somebody else, not in the way an adult person is typically self-sufficient. Now, if you follow that through to its logical conclusion that an unborn is a person just as much as an adult or even a toddler is a person, then really it comes down to, does the Bible actually address abortion? Yes, it talks about it in the taking of another person's life. It starts in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. After the flood, God is giving Noah instructions and commands for how the earth and society is going to function after the flood. And he says, And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. And this is the important part. Why does God do this? For God made human beings in his own image. So God says people, more than any of the other creations that he has, more than any other mammals or reptiles or fish in the sea or birds, humans are to be treated differently because they are the only thing that was made in his image. Now, a couple of Bible verses to think about where you say, well, I understand that a full-grown person, that seems like a human to me and a teenager and maybe even a toddler or a baby. I can't wrap my head around the Bible calling something that's not even born a person. Here's a few verses to consider. The first is Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
Here's another one in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. And there's other places in Psalms. The Bible is clear that God considers a person, even in the womb before they're born, to be a person the same as a person after they're born. So what's the command now that he gives to everyone? It's actually one of the big ten, the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. He says, you shall not murder. Now, one chapter later in Exodus 21, the way the Bible fleshes out these laws is it often gives a principle and then it gives examples later on to clarify that principle. So the principle is given in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. And then one chapter later, God describes an example of how you implement that principle. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 22 and 23, he says, Now, suppose two men are fighting, and in the process, they accidentally strike a pregnant woman so that she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation that the woman's husband demands and the judges approve. So if you cause a woman to give birth prematurely, that's a major inconvenience, and you owe that woman compensation for that. But here's the interesting part. It says, but if there is further injury, not talking about the woman because it already covered that case a chapter earlier when it says you shall not murder. So if further injury occurred to the woman, if the woman died, well then reference back to Exodus chapter 20. But this is saying if there's further injury, the punishment must match the injury a life for a life. So the Bible clearly teaches that a person who is unborn, if they're born prematurely, that is still a life. And if that life is ended because of someone's actions, that person is held accountable. So yes, the Bible actually addresses abortion And we as Christians can know that it is a sin. Now, a lot of people have done a much better job than I could do on one short radio episode of addressing this topic. My favorite is Josh Brom from Equal Rights Institute, whom I interviewed here on the radio show several months ago. I'll leave a link to his website in our podcast, but it is Equal Rights Institute. He's got phenomenal resources and has thought through many of the more complex aspects of this issue and has great biblical answers. All right, the next question is, is it okay to date someone who isn't a Christian? Now, this is a little more Christian living than apologetics, but let's give it a go. First, I would clarify what dating means. Now, it meant something different for my grandfather's time than it did my parents' time, than it does for me, than it does for my kids. Even different people within different generations would give it a different definition. So if by dating you just mean hanging out or going to the movies or talking on the phone, I would say, yeah, do that with whoever you want. Have fun. Be a kid. Have friends. But if by dating you mean being in a serious relationship, 
that could lead to marriage, yeah, the Bible definitely has something about who Christians should consider as potential spouses. So one verse to look at is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, the context here is not specifically marriage. But the concept certainly could be applied to marriage. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that, no, Christians should not be planning to marry non-Christians. Now, the next obvious question is, well, why not? Is it because they're terrible people or because God doesn't want us to be happy? No, of course not. You need to remember that all of the rules that God gives are for our good. The more we obey God, the more we follow his rules, the happier, more fulfilled, richer life we will live. So why doesn't God want Christians to marry non-Christians? For the simple reason that your faith, what you believe about the Bible, what you believe about God, what you believe God thinks about you, these are the most important fundamental topics of who we are. And so you want to be in alignment with the person that you are in covenant with, that you're married to, on the most important aspects of life. Are you going to raise your kids to go to church? Are you going to raise your kids to follow Jesus? Are you going to teach the Bible in your home? Are you going to live consistently according to a biblical worldview in everything that you do? These are all questions that have obvious answers when you're married to someone who thinks the same way you do. But it causes nothing but strife and conflict when a Christian plans to marry a non-Christian. All right, let's go to our next question. Are tattoos good or bad? Like the whole don't eat pork thing. Now, this is a great question. A lot of Christians go to the Bible in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, when they're looking for counsel on trying to answer this topic. It says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, at a superficial reading, it seems to be pretty clear that the Bible says, No, you can never get tattoos. But is that the context of this verse? No, if you go back and read what Moses is talking about in this book, it's talking about not joining with the culture around them in their forms of idolatry, not making cuts on your body for the dead or tattooing yourselves for the dead. So it's talking about customs within the context that have a very specific meaning. Getting a tattoo in today's culture is not the same thing that Leviticus 19 is saying. There's a lot of good Christians out there who may have a difference of opinion on this, but it's my opinion that the Bible doesn't weigh in one way or the other conclusively about whether Christians can get tattoos. So, let's assume that the Bible's not clear. What do you do in situations that the Bible doesn't say one way or the other? This is where it goes to forms of wisdom. And I think there are six things we can keep in mind here. Number one, 
Does our culture consider it a moral issue? Is there a clear right and wrong that's agreed upon in the culture that you're in? Second, does it bother not just the culture in general, but does it bother your conscience specifically? God has given different people different convictions, and if this is something that bothers your conscience, you probably shouldn't do it. Third is motive. You really need to be honest with yourself and say, why do I want to do this? Does it have a good motive, or is it a sinister or a bad motive? Fourth, how will others view this? What model are you showing to other people? For those of you with brothers and sisters, you might consider, how would your little brother or sister view this? Fifth, ministry. Do you think it would help or hurt your ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others? Off the top of my head, I can think of some ways where it might help your ministry. There's a lot of people in the Northwest with tattoos, and it may help you fit into that crowd. I can also imagine some scenarios where it would be a hindrance. People would be distracted by someone who had a tattoo and was trying to share Jesus Christ with them. So that's another thing to consider. And then the last one is, what message are you giving to either yourself or to somebody else 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road? What's that long-term message going to be? And is it going to change? Is it something that you're going to regret later in life? So those are all things to consider. When you have a choice like this that the Bible's not clear on one way or the other, there's just some wisdom things to consider as you make the choice. And then in the end, I think God allows us to make different choices. Now, just for fun, let's go back to that part, the second half of that, which is, are tattoos good or bad? Like the whole don't eat pork thing. So let's talk for a moment about why the Jews were not allowed to eat pork. God talks about it in Leviticus chapter 11. He says, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Of all the land animals, these are the ones that you may use for food. You may eat any animal that has completely split hooves and choose the cud. You may not, however, eat the following animals that have split hooves or that chew the cud, but don't do both. Then to give some examples, the camel... Choose the cud, but doesn't have split hooves, so it's ceremonially unclean for you. The rock badger, choose the cud, but it doesn't have split hooves, so it's unclean. The hare, or the rabbit, choose the cud, but doesn't have split hooves, so it's unclean. The pig, a lot of people know, okay, Jews are not supposed to eat pork, or pork was considered unclean. The pig, why is that? Well, it's because the pig has evenly split hooves, but doesn't chew the cud. So it's unclean. You may not eat the meat of these animals or even touch their carcasses. They're ceremonially unclean for you. Now, why was that? I would say two reasons. One, it just caused for healthier diets. In a time that was lacking in modern food preparation and safety techniques, there's been studies shown today where you actually have a better diet. You're a healthier person if you avoid these foods. And the second, it was a reminder to the people, the nation of Israel, that they were to be set apart. They were to be different than the cultures around them. So a lot of people focus a lot on don't eat pork. Well, what about the rock badger? What about camel? (laughs) Anyway, that's just an interesting uh, bonus thing to consider on the second half of this question. Now, the last question for today is, again, more of a Christian living question than a pure 
apologetics question. But if you remember, these are questions that I was asked during a high school Bible class and that I answered for the students. I thought this was an excellent question, and it really represented a heart of what I think a lot of young people in our culture is asking today. And it's this. How do you grow a consistent relationship with God? And I think at the end of the day, a lot of people ask questions and they want to feed their mind. They want their Christianity to make sense, and that's good. But behind that, what people really want is a relationship with God. So let me spend just a few moments sharing out of my personal life and out of the Bible what I think really helps you grow a consistent relationship with God. Now, let me say that I don't think there's any magic formula that's the best way to do this. I think there's different styles for different people. It really comes down to two things. One, if you want to grow closer to God, you need to spend time with Him. And number two, you need to show Him honor and respect, just like you would any human relationship. If you tried to get closer to your friend at school or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your mom and dad or your grandpa and grandma or your siblings, you would want to spend time with them and you would want to honor and respect them. I don't see it vastly different in our relationship with God. Now, here are five specific principles from the Bible of how we can do this specifically in our relationship with God. Number one is the confession of our sin. Now, when we sin, what we're doing is we are breaking one of the commands that God has set up. We are breaking the relationship with a holy God. So after we break the relationship with God in our sin, we need to confess it to him. We need to acknowledge that we have sinned against God and ask him to forgive us. In 1 John chapter 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. What an amazing God we serve that he doesn't come down with ultimate condemnation and judgment and say, one sin and that's it. You're cut off forever. But he gives us the opportunity to confess our sins and to be reconciled to him. The next thing we can do to grow a consistent relationship with God is to study God's word. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 19, Peter explains that he and the other disciples were eyewitnesses to Jesus. They heard him talk and speak and do his miracles. Yet, it wasn't their eyewitness testimony that was the most powerful. It was actually the word of God that all of us have access to. He says it this way, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's talking about the mountain of transfiguration. But listen to what Peter says next. And yet we have a prophetic word that is more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than what? Than their own eyewitness account, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
Now, here's Peter, who said, I was there with Jesus. I walked with him. And you know what's even more reliable than my eyewitness walking with Jesus for three years is when I read the Word of God. And all of us can do that. So make a commitment to be diligent and to studying your Bible and reading the Word of God. The third step is prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What God is saying is, prayer is so much more than just asking God for stuff. It's about communing with God. It's about telling God what's on your heart and what's making you frustrated and giving him thanks for what he's given you and rejoicing with him and celebrating with him. So we should establish a constant communication of God. You shouldn't pray once a day. You shouldn't pray twice a day or five times a day. You should pray all day long, every day. The fourth one is you should make a commitment to regular fellowship with other believers, people who are also following after God like you want to do. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, he says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We need to be fellowshipping with other believers sharpening them, encouraging them, challenging them, being challenged and encouraged by them in a loving spiritual community. And the last one is this. Number five, we need to obey God's commands. God has given all of these things, all of these rules and statutes for our good. When we follow them, we're the ones who are blessed. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them, and we will make our home with them. So these are five great things that you can do to grow in a consistent relationship with God. All right, well, that's all we have time for today. I hope these answers have been helpful. We ended up reading a lot of Bible verses on the show today. And I think at the end of the day, I hope something that I say is helpful and encouraging to you, but really the Bible has the true source of power and transformation. So hopefully those Bible verses were helpful, and I encourage you to go and follow up on some of them yourself. As always, the Ambassadors Forum is here to help. You can go to our website at theambassadorsforum.com for lots of helpful resources and lots of other Bible verses that can get you started in your own study. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God would raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you.